This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Keith Moore and Phil Van Valkenburg as they talk about church plant particularization. This seminar was recorded at the 2021 General Assembly in St. Louis. Let's listen as Keith and Phil provide a legal and operational guide to church planting particularization. Thank you all for coming this morning. And so Keith and I are going to swap back and forth as far as the, uh, the microphone goes. And so uh, we appreciate the, uh, the attendance. Just as a, uh, as a start, just to kind of show your hand, if you're a church planner, a network leader, or an M&A committee member. That's kind of the, the threesome that I would look for. Church planning, church planners, several, okay. Network leaders, M&A committee. John, I saw you, okay, thank you. Good, that helps us, pretty good balance. Uh, today, we're gonna, like I said, swap back and forth. Uh, there's a handout at the door, and most of them got a hold of that. Uh, we're not going to scare you. We're not going to walk through that in every word, but it's a take-home. Uh, these slides will be available to you. Uh, did we pass around a uh, uh, email? There, there will be. There's a um, sign-up sheet at the back if you want to leave us your name and address, uh, email address. At the also at auxilio.partners/ga-docs, we will actually have, have the PowerPoint. You can just download and it. And I there. can do the same on my website, so that'd be fine. We can do that. Uh, we were introduced, and that's uh, it's a privilege to be able to help uh, you think through some things today. And so uh, let's move on to the backdrop behind our, our presentation. It really begins with a uh, this paradigm that says that every church has three interlocking dimensions to it. And every church has uh, the element of being a community, having a cause and being a corporation. And so those three held intention form the essence of a church. And it's based on this idea of that is based upon this verse out of Philippians where Paul says, but I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, a community focus and fellow co-worker, a corporate focus and fellow soldier, a cause. So Paul saw this three-point dimension of a church, and 
the analogy behind it, so as you can see, where there's for the community, it's a family type of a, an analogy. For our cause, it's a military. And for the corporate, it's a business analogy. Now, a healthy church has to have all three elements, and they have to be held in balance. And each of those elements of the church has, has certain things that, that are, all have a goal, all have shared values, and all have a leadership role. And you can see the diversity there of what it takes as far as the vision, the mission, the values, and the leadership required. And in the corporate area, the focus is on effectiveness and efficiency. The, the value is order and stewardship. And the, the roles of a CEO or the king part of prophet, priest, and king, and an overseer, another word for elder. So the real challenge is that a, a leader rarely excels in all three areas. I, I just don't think that's the way we're made. Christ excelled in all three areas, but most of us have to focus our time and energy on, on probably two of those. So the real challenge is how to, our focus of our talk will be the corporate side. How does a pastor focus on the, his time and energy on cause and community and still accomplish the corporate pieces, especially as a church planner. So our objectives today are to lay out clearly the what, what is required to move from, from planting to particularization, and secondly, the how. What are the different approaches on getting that done? So that's the framework that we have for what we're about to do. Keith? So the, the matrix that you received coming in, again, please, uh, we're not going to go through all of that, but what's a, I think what we wanted to do that, that we hope is helpful is to examine that there are stages or seasons of life for a getting from church plant, and then there are elements or uh, particular pieces that we need to sort of break those components into. So the stages or seasons that we're, we're going to look at this morning include vision and preparation, what takes place kind of pre-field, uh, outreach, that time when you've gone to the field, you're looking to make inroads into the community, build that core group. Third would be the, where you begin public worship and start forming that core group to the point where you're now ready to move to stage four, public worship. Uh, now moves into launch and grow your church, and from there, over the next year or two, moving to development of leaders and getting into the particularization phase or independence. Again, seasonality, these are going to differ, obviously, depending upon sort of the model of your church plant. If you're coming from a strong mother church, and they're going to provide a lot of support, the, the vision and preparation and outreach element may be significantly reduced, but um, we're still going to go sort of walk through these. The other portion of the matrix is the organizational elements uh, that, that you need to consider. And again, as much as we like check boxes and we had to sort of put these into boxes, uh, they're a little more fluid than that. But pieces that you really need to take a look at include strategic, um, I wish there would have been a way that I, as I thought about it this morning, that I could have put behind strategic all the way across in big, bold letters sort of hidden behind that is prayer. Um, ultimately, 
the most strategic uh, piece that you are going to have is praying from start to finish through all of this. The legal elements, uh, incorporation and bylaws, we'll look at that. Denominational aspects, there's specific elements to being in the PCA that you're going to have to dance through. Communication and data infrastructure, whether it's Office 365, Google Workspace, whatever. Um, the financial piece, everything from budgeting to, to structure of, of reports and trending, uh, donation and people management, what church management system are you going to be looking to use, human resources, people need to get paid, you need to have uh, ultimately the ability to, to manage those, that growing ministry team, and then finally sort of the risk management where we get into insurance and other pieces. So we're going to sort of quickly move through each of these. Uh, again, you've got that matrix. I really, again, the more I thought about it, it should always be dotted lines between all of those because stuff will be somewhat fluid depending on your particular context and whether or not you're working with a mother church, for instance. So let's take a quick look. And what we're going to do, we're just going to sort of highlight one or two elements that from our experience as we've walked through these um, that you may need to give some particular attention to. So as you look at vision and preparation, um, one of the things that I would, would look at on the sort of communication data infrastructure, if you're going through M&A, for instance, as a PCA church planner, and you're going to use them for your fundraising, uh, one of the things that you want to take advantage of is there is a free contact management tool from Crew called MPDX. And uh, you'll find that on the M&A website. There's a link to, to find that. This will allow you not only to, to understand what, how your fundraising is doing, because it connects back into M&A's fundraising platform, but you can also then manage your contact and outreach contacts, track to-do list for them, and it's a general purpose, personal fundraising and contact management tool that I would definitely uh, make sure you take advantage of. Bill? So I want to highlight the uh, financial area. At the startup point, uh, a budget is, is a critical element, and I would think a three-year financial plan is a way to call that a budget at this stage, about a three-year plan. And think of it in terms of the what, how much, and when, key elements. And in the area of the budget, think of four Ps, people, program, process, and promotion. And so under the people side, particularly if you look down at the at the bottom under HR, the call letter and the salary and benefits, that's a big part of that, of that salary or that people part and other staff that may come on during that three-year period. Program is your outreach, your worship, and, and other ministries that you begin to launch during those three years. Process, I would call it just getting stuff done, administrative, all the way from startup one-time projects to ongoing type of administration. And finally, promotion. Who's your audience? It's the public. So website and those sorts of things, and then your donors. So what's the message that you have to do? What's the money you have to spend to develop your donor base? So those are things that, that I would put in, into that budget. The next phase in the on-field, I'm going to, uh, to cover a little bit about the legal side. And at this stage, uh, there's building foundation, and the purpose for us talking about is to create a legal identity, 
legal structure and legal protection. And the first step is the name registration and typically registering with the Secretary of State's office and that'll get you a unique legal identity and, and that then leads into the incorporation step and that incorporation has some real purposes. Uh, it's highly recommended that churches become incorporated uh, for several reasons. Uh, one, it gives that official status as a state-based corporation. And in the Articles of Incorporation, you get to state your religious purpose. And that's really essential to lead, if there are ever issues that require your religious liberty to be challenged, that in your incorporation documents that you have that stated. And also to align with the PCA Constitution. So you're not just a standalone church, you're part of this broader body and can rely on what the PCA uh, believes. Uh, that'll also relate, result in a corporate ID number. So a little technicality, but it comes in useful at various times. The next would be bylaws. About 75% of the states require bylaws of the corporations that are incorporated. So uh, sometimes it's an easy skip over. But the bylaws are really critical to define who is in your organization, the members, the officers, and what authority they have, how they do what they do, the governing, the organizing, the meeting types of structures. And again, that's a place for you to state your religious affiliation and protection if you're ever confronted with an issue to, to uh, uh, declare that you're within your rights to do what you do. Also, it provides you a way to provide officer liability immunity. So it's really down in the weeds, but you want that as you recruit ruling elders and for yourselves as teaching elders. Uh, start simple and it can grow. So it's an amendable document. Question? Bylaws yeah. Give you in the bylaws, you can bake in clauses that indicate the, the immunity from liability, personal liability, that the officers have. So it's a way to protect, if there's a suit against the church, that the suit would be against the corporation, but the, the officers with themselves would be immune from that, unless there's gross negligence, which is another issue. The last is an employer ID number, which uh, is to get a technicality. You need it to be able to pay taxes, federal and state. Uh, withholding, and that also is needed for a bank account and for uh, state sales tax exemption most often. Keith, I think you're next. Whoops, I didn't. Go ahead. Take it back to the yeah. other one. Um, stage two. Anyway, so you raised the question about um, liability, and whether you like it or not, at this point, you're out on the field, hopefully having some great outreach. You're starting a couple, maybe a home Bible study. Uh, hey, they got kids, let's get some babysitters, we'll just, you know, we'll use somebody, maybe we'll get some teenagers from the neighborhood to watch the kids. You have now not only, you've entered liability territory now, because in today's marketplace, and you guys understand this, the whole issue of sexual misconduct, child protection policies and so forth, is at the forefront, whether you like it or not, and it's gonna be at the forefront of your church plant as soon as you begin to have any kind of Bible study and all where kids are involved. So this is something that you're going to need to, to understand and begin to take a look at much sooner than we probably used to in the past. All right. Uh, insurance is also comes into play with that idea of director and officer liability. So combined with the incorporation, 
you want to make sure that the insurance protection that you get for your church is going to include liability protection for the directors and officers, which in this case are usually this, going to be the session, temporary session. And if I can interject a word, the word is indemnification. So if you're looking for that buzzword in the document, yeah. and it's a tough one, but it, that's important okay. to have. On to three. So now you've, you've gotten to the point of um, getting to that preview worship and so forth. Um, at this point, you've been relying mostly on external donors. Now you're beginning to develop a core of internal folks that are going to be supporting the mission going forward. So at this point, you're going to th need to start thinking about our own online platform, our own church management uh, software, where we can begin to build the internal uh, database of people that are coming to our church. This is where you're gonna, you'll have the opportunity then to move that data from that personal online tool that you've been using. You can bring that into the, the, the new church management software that you're using. Begin to develop your own internal giving component and begin that transition into uh, a real church. Uh, also, Background checks are going to start to come into play when it comes to uh, use of volunteers, particularly with children. Uh, so that'll be a, another piece that you'll have to give some attention to. And I want to highlight the risk management part at this stage. Uh, you mentioned bringing in other people, your, your members or your, your own congregation's money. It's time to begin to think about a financial policy, and that can be daunting, but make it real simple. It's to minimize uh, the chance of misuse of funds. I'll go back up to risk management. A simple buzzword, it's max minimizing potential harm from known risks. So don't let that scare you. Minimizing potential harm from known risks. So you're moving towards being accountable as a corporation for taking on certain risks just by existing. One of those is financial risk. And so having a policy that builds and maintains accountability by those in authority, and also to be demonstrating good stewardship of the church finances. So you look to get those into a policy, and major elements would be who's oversight, who has oversight over this, what's the budgeting process, how do you manage assets, how do you handle income and expenses in an accountable way, and how do you keep records and report. So just all very dry stuff, but get it started uh, and get to thinking about how, in fact, you're going to be a good steward of the funds that God gives. Uh, Keith mentioned child protection. They're very closely interlinked. In my experience, if you want insurance, you're going to need both child protection policy and a sexual misconduct policy for adults. So I break it between minors and adults. Sexual misconduct is one of the greatest risks, either for children abuse or for among adults, that the church has. And so what I would recommend is to take on the child protection and sexual misconduct in the same way. Let me just mention some of those greatest risks. Personal risk for the individuals affected, and that is a major issue either for the predator or the one that's a victim. Second is reputational risk. If a church gets named as, a, as liable or accused of something, that church's reputation is at stake in the neighborhood. Legal risk, officers are at risk, as long as they are not negligent, but gross negligence can happen if they don't have a policy and don't follow the policy, and they can personally be liable for damages if they are shown to be grossly negligent. So that's a scary thing. 
If they're grossly negligent, yes, yes. And insurance will not cover gross negligence. So time and mission risk. If you get sued, it will take a lot of distraction for your church, a lot of your time. And last, financial harm. Judgments and settlements can occur. So those are, those are pretty critical issues. Uh, we are ready now? Am I keeping on it? I'm just trying to remember what we do. Okay. We have this organized to flip-flop, so here we are. Stage four, public worship. And I want to highlight uh, in, the, in the HR side the... Uh, I just realized that. At some point, you're going to want an employee handbook. And so let me highlight first the principle and some purposes. Uh, the, the principle is when it's a solo pastor, it's probably not essential. When you get to at least about four employees, it becomes essential. Because originally, you're on a case-by-case -case basis to make decisions. Once you get into multiple employees, you have fairness issues. And if you ever get a complaint from one of your employees, you have to be able to say, we documented the policy and we do the policy. Those are the two key Ds, and I've had too much experience with uh, this. I don't want to get personal, but it, you want a good policy manual with your employees when you get into the, about a handful of employees. Uh, that'll also lead then to a performance management system, and that's a big word for saying, how do we make sure that we align the individual employees' contributions with the church's goals? How do you align those so that their contributions match what the church is trying to do? And it takes the form of good job descriptions, um, annual goals, annual reviews, a compensation plan, and finally, um, professional development for the individuals involved. Okay. On your uh Communications and data infrastructure, one of the things that we're, you're, you're going to want to do during this period as you're adding staff is making sure that we're, we're putting that together and so that the entire communications platform, whether it's email, data storage, all of those pieces are both secure and easily transferable between personnel. Uh, so one of the things that we encourage, for instance, is to use something like uh, children at for instance, for the children's ministry director, because that's a position that may change relatively easily. But by setting it up as a children at, if you move from one to another, you're maintaining that email uh, communication history that's going to be really valuable to see what was done in the past and what's been done in the future. Their documents that relate to the children's ministry are all going to stay attached to that drive for that particular email. So, just some thought in terms of how you organize as you begin to add personnel uh, across the board. And little things too, like most of the platform, both the uh, Office 365 and Google Workspace platforms now have really improved their group work. So you want to make utilization of that for things like when you get into session at, deacons at, where again, you're able to add people as they are active to the group when they're on sabbatical, you can take them out of the group, um, they're not overwhelmed, and all of your data communications to session at remains in its own email silo, uh, so that, you, again, you've got the history. So a few things to take 
into consideration as you're beginning to grow your church and add personnel? This may seem like a little, like a bit strange to, to say when we're getting to particularization, but I'm gonna say, emphasize on the people side to cultivate generosity. Now, think about it. I, I work with nonprofits as well. If you're in a nonprofit environment, you wanna know who your donors are. You wanna cultivate those donors and work with them. Now think about it as a church planter, that's exactly what you're doing in the first couple of stages. You're out there fundraising for your church plant. You know who those donors are. You're communicating with them, cultivating them so that they're going to support the work. The, there's this interesting transition that occurs though as we now start with internal givers such that most pastors end up saying, I don't want to know who's giving to my church. I appreciate the reasons for not for saying that and not wanting to know who gives what specifically. But if you think about it, there are two aspects to knowing something about the giving of your church. One, some people have a gift of giving. Scripture tells us that. And so it's part of discipleship in general and in particular to look to cultivate generosity in your congregation. Secondly, in terms of financial understanding of how people are doing, let me ask, I'll just ask two questions. Would it be helpful for you if you're the pastor to know that 30% of your members, not attenders, members, have given less than $500 in the last year? That probably would be worthwhile information. Or you have somebody who's been a regular giver for the last three years, and all of a sudden in the last two months, they completely fell off the grid from a giving perspective. You may have a discipleship issue. You may have somebody who moved and never communicated, or you may have somebody who lost their job and could use diaconal support. So the financial element, at keeping track of your people's giving, actually working with whoever's managing that for you can help give you some information that actually can help you shepherd and lead better as you move through this stage of your church life. And I want to cover a long-range capital plan, but I want to put it in perspective. At this stage, you have trained your elders. You're, you're moving forward into particularization, and that group, your session, will own the future of the church. And property becomes a big deal. I've got a couple of examples, and I'll just try to be brief. Two churches I've worked with. One of them has rental of a Seventh-day Adventist church. They get access all day Sunday. It's a perfect setup. Another church here in the St. Louis area, I got an email this morning from the pastor from their normal near-end communication. They're meeting, they were in a school before the pandemic. When the school closed, they lost their place. They worshiped in a pavilion at a park. Last week, it was raining on a Sunday. They canceled completely. Today, I got the email that says, we're gonna meet regardless of weather. We're just not gonna bring our sound equipment in. We've got a good enough pavilion. That setting, you can bet that that session is saying, we can't sustain this. We have to have a property plan. And so a property plan leads into a capital plan. And the capital plan components are what do we need, when do we need it, how much will it be? And the ways to build that capital plan are you gotta be thinking about a balance sheet and about borrowing. 
So how do you build your balance sheet so that you have some reserves? And then how do you go to a bank and borrow, developing bank relationships? I would also layer on strategic staffing at this stage. If you're looking longer term, where do we need to go with the staffing and how do we build a financial plan for that? That wraps up the first section here on the what to get done. The next question is how to get it done. And we're going to give you six different ways of getting it done. We're going to have to breeze through here. The first a church planner is not a job training. The second, use volunteers. Third, hire an in-house admin. Fourth, partially outsource. Fifth, use a project management mix and match approach or completely outsource. And I'll take the first. This is on the backside of your handout. So there's two matrices. So this is your detailed take home. Again, we're going to highlight just a couple of things uh, on the church planner on the job training. This is the natural instinct because the church planner tends to be entrepreneurial and says, I can do anything and I'll learn it while I'm doing it. If I haven't figured it out, I will figure it out myself. That has some advantages because it taps that entrepreneurial instinct and hey, there's no extra money involved. One of my clients that I've worked with is a lawyer and he could do this. He, when we decided to work together, he said, I know I can do this, but I don't want to distract from my core mission, which is building this church. And so I need some outside help in order to get this done. So that's a, a con that it would have distracted him and then this is a stressful job to begin with in church planning. Taking on this corporate stuff is an additional stress. A second way you can obviously staff is through volunteers. Uh, that's taking, going to take advantage of the available resources that you have in your church. Um, had a church in Baltimore that came to me and said, hey, we really need to rebuild our infrastructure but I have got an awesome group of volunteers. They've been with me for a couple years already. I can fill all of the admin positions that I need with volunteers, build a software, train our people, and let us run. And that's what we did. And for them, it's been working great for the last four years. Um, so there's some definite pros with volunteers if you have them. The, the biggest difficulty you run into with volunteers is twofold. One is gonna be how much time do they have available? Um, you can check with Phil on War Stories about volunteers when you're trying to plan GA. Um, but this, and then there's a, what we call the trust accountability dilemma, which is if somebody's working for you and you're not paying them, um, it makes it a little bit more difficult to let them go or manage them if they're not performing well. Uh, so again, Lots of pros and cons uh, to volunteers. I would do it when I could. Next option, and these kind of run in uh, low to high commitment as far as expenditures. Hire an in-house admin. So find a function that you can hire somebody internally. The advantage here is that uh, you might be able to find the right person, particularly in an accounting bookkeeping area where they can take on that. And an in-house person would probably be a reasonable expense. Uh, the, uh, the con is that it's possible that you're spending money on admin and you really want to spend the money on ministry. I, like, I hate that distinction, but I think you know the difference. So that would be a, a con uh, where your second would be the same thing on, on volunteer. When you have a member who is an employee, if performance is an issue, it's more difficult, more sensitive to deal with that. Uh, I'll give you an example here of a good situation. One of these churches that I've dealt with, 
the worship leader is also the person that handles the database and the communications. So it's a multi-skilled person. So she leads music and she does some of this administrative stuff. Uh, on the other hand, her husband is one of the ruling elders. <laughs> so go to this employee member risk. So if there would be some kind of issues there, it gets complicated when you hire in-house. And so I would just be aware of the possibilities, but the concerns as well. So the next three involve some level of outsourcing where you say, instead of us worrying, trying to do everything in-house, we're going to look and see if it makes sense for us to take some things out. So when we talk about partial outsourcing, for instance, there are, in fact, some, some areas where it makes sense to think about having somebody outside do it because there's a lot of options available, particularly on the HR and the finance side. You can find accounting help. You can find HR help that's outside your organization, but they've got the expertise because that's what they're focused on. A couple of things that you potentially have to be uh, careful of is if you hire, for instance, on the HR side, if you hire a firm that does general business, you need to ask questions about, do they do churches? Because you get into a whole different tax situation, obviously, with a pastor. And I've seen situations where they kept, they have treated the pastor as a regular employee, taking out FICA. It was a mess. Uh, it took a couple of years to, to remedy that situation. Um, Probably the, 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 the one downside that I've heard in some situations is, again, that it tends to be then just a transactional relationship where there's not necessarily an investment in your church in understanding your context and, and where it is you're going and what you need. So that would probably be the, the biggest con relative to outsourcing on this, in this kind of way. The next is to say, uh, I, I kind of want to mix and match. I like some of what I saw earlier, but I still need some help and would maybe fall in a project management realm. The idea here is to engage a consultant for that person's expertise and to help manage the, the legal and an operational part of particularization. So these last two are kind of our sweet spots, so we're going to talk a little bit about personal experience. Uh, but in this area, you're accessing somebody that better have some expertise. They better bring something to the table that will help you get stuff done faster and better. And they better have the ability to provide resources that can quickly get you some things done. So my examples would be a client where, with a template for bylaws, a template for child protection policy, a template for a financial policy, uh, helping with the church management system choice, which one would fit you, how do you adapt from your spreadsheet into a simple church management system. Uh, if you're going to get insurance, who handles the relationship with a broker and, and getting insurance quotes and make a decision on the right kind of insurance. And the same if you have an outsourced accounting firm, which is the case sometimes, like you just mentioned. Who has that relationship as you make some of these changes? So those are some examples of what you'd want to have in an outside person that could accelerate some of these complex things through your church to make that happen. On the, on the con side, it's a one-time expense. So as a session, you'd have to say, as a temporary session in process, is this something that we want to spend some one-time money on to help get there faster and easier for the pastor? And it doesn't replace the need for 
these ongoing operational functions. So it's a, it's a way to have a person come alongside and help through the process and, and yet allow the, uh, other act, the other activities to continue to occur. On the complete outsource side, you actually have this at several different levels, right? If you, uh, we were talking with a, um, a guy yesterday, in fact, and he said, I've really got a sweet situation. My mother church is basically going to take care of everything for the first couple of years. That's a complete outsource in essence, where they're handing over all of the administrative, the, the finance, the HR pieces and all to the mother church. And then they've got that for two or three years and then they'll have to figure out how to, to handle themselves administratively going forward. Um, some of you are familiar with RUF had their university church initiative, which, yeah. So uh, the question is, what's the downside to a mother church doing it for two or three years? Yeah. yeah. We're recording this. That's why I wanted to hear. Yeah. yeah. Um, the biggest downside that you run into is that the mother church is going to, much like with RUF as well, they're gonna, they've got a very pre-structured chart of accounts, how they manage their expenses and so forth. So you're going to have to sort of, you're going to have to fit into their model for as long as you're using them. Uh, so if you want, for instance, to organize your expense buckets differently because you want to see things organized differently, you're going to have to, to wait to a degree until you get out on your own to structure that for yourself. That's the most significant downside. I think that there is possibly, again, how much control are they giving you in the process? Um, that, that's the biggest issue that you're going to face, I think, right? Um, again, RUF is another model. Their, their university church initiative where they basically are handling everything for the church planter until they get close to particularization. But they're um, discontinuing that. Yeah. yeah. And so you got the same thing where, you know, we pulled out a, a couple of the churches that just particularized from RUF that we're working with now. Basically, what we had to do when, when separating and creating a new chart of accounts for them was to at, go through all the history because there were points at which they had to put two or three different kinds of expenses into sort of one bucket for, for that time that they were with RUF. Um, the plus of a, of a complete outsource approach, again, is that if it's, if it's somebody, it's somebody you trust, this is a high trust relationship, obviously. You have to be confident that they understand who you are, what you're doing, where you want to go, and that they're going to be part of that process, not just simply doing transactions. So uh, the benefit is that, again, it, you can get expertise that's ready and understands the market. The other side is that you've got a, you're to a degree potentially thinking of, I don't have as much control because I'm offloading a lot of this to somebody else. Uh, and for some, that, that's going to look like a greater expense because you're putting more out. Um, but again, think of these ways of getting it done. They're not, um, you may very well move through a good many of these in the course of the life of your church. 
the question is going to be what makes sense for us where we are now and what's going to make sense for us going forward in the context that we're in. Thank you for your time. I know that uh, we're about to embark on an exciting day. Thank you for this early morning uh, meeting and appreciate your questions and attention. Thank you. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.